Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Coming up on the payoff, Scott D is one of the people who helped me get sober, and he continues to help others get sober today. He's a New York guy. I lives in Philadelphia now, and he embodies what I want out of recovery, which is why he's a guy that I always talk to and a guy that I think so highly of. You want to listen to this story if you're trying to get sober or if you're sober and just trying to get today. This is the guy. Uh, Scott D. Coming up. But first, Kevin Susan. I've, I've been doing an occasional one of these with Peter. In what capacity? So he sits in. sidekick. Yeah. Really? I swear yeah. to God. Uh, he's, he's, he, 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 he was on for Dave C. He was on for another guy. Yeah, he's I don't good. understand why the, you have to change your name. If Mike Hamilton's the sound guy yeah. and the guy putting the whole thing together, you can't have two mics. No, no you can't. And no. then microphones. It's very confusing. Yeah, Mike Mike Hamilton wants out of this thing. I don't even know him, and I know he's done with this shit. <laughs> you might be right. That's um, for sure. All right, Scott, so you know how this goes, right? We, we're we're going to take you through your I experience. I listened, you asked me questions, right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> and I answered. Where are you now? You're, so you're in, you're in Naples. I'm in Florida for three months. Yeah. What's the weather like? It's, um, it was a little cold today. It was like 65, 64. Oh, Yes. So you're playing golf? Did you play golf today? I played golf this morning, yes. How's your en- how's your how's your energy? My energy's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little tired here and there. Yeah. But I walked 18 holes today. So wow. Wow. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Play tomorrow, play Wednesday, play Friday. Well, you couldn't play you couldn't yeah, obviously you're playing Wednesday because we Mike had to ch- switch the schedule for you. Yeah, I know. Wednesday, Wednesday, um, I had something going on Wednesday afternoon. Golf? You're playing golf, golf Scott. Oh, Wednesday morning. Okay. Oh. All right. Yeah. All right. What, what about, can I just say something before we well, get this started? This is the last thing he's going to say. Okay. Like, uh, I, like, Scott's got that, like, that big brother intimidation, I think, to both of us a little bit. And I know, Ooh. in a good way, like, well, big don't brother. Don't be scared, Mike. Me? Yeah, don't be scared. No, but I'm saying... You know, you waited this long to ask Scott to be on the podcast because you were afraid he'd be like, I'm not doing that. Oh, 100%. Like, there's some, right. there's, some oh, yeah. there's certain people. And my and girls were asking me how come I wasn't on. I go, I've never been asked. That's like, why. You have to respect. Yeah. Honestly, there's certain people. Eve, uh, Peter F. was kind of weird about it, of course, right? But he was like, well, let me figure out, like, how I'm going to do it. You know, I can't have mm. any any video. Uh, we're, we're supposed to stay anonymous at press, radio, and film, but that doesn't mean you can't talk about it. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, we'll put it out, then you'll be Scott D, and that'll be that'll be it. Yeah. You know? Well, Pete had less less fear of Tony Mandrich, Hollywood Henderson, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Chris Terry, than he did of Scott. That's yeah. just the best. 
<laughs> See that? Hillary <laughs> Phelps. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody. Yeah. All right. So, Scott, where'd you go? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Queens, in Rockaway Beach, New York, which is the um, beginning of Long Island. So, if Montauk's out here. Um, it's right outside of Brooklyn. It's on the other end. And uh, it was, you know, the Irish Riviera, we call it, you know. <laughs> so I grew up about 150 yards from the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. Year round, we lived there. Yep. So, so you grow up and what was it like? What was the environment like, like in, in the household before we get outside and what your friends were like and stuff like that? But yeah. what was the environment like that you grew up in? The environment was good. I had a great mother and father, you know, who came from really crazy backgrounds, who uh, showed up for their kids. My father provided well for us, you know, went to New York City every day to work for the same company for 35 years. And my mom worked in a florist a couple of days a week for cash on the side so she didn't have to bother my father. And um, and then, um, you know, we went to Catholic school, Catholic high school. Uh, pretty good colleges. And uh, so home-wise, uh, it wasn't bad, you know, and, and education was pushed on us. That and and, uh, and Catholicism and going to church and being a good kid. For, for me and Mike Souza, it's easy for us to trace, um, like, where the alcoholism was in our family. It was a really, like, heavy duty on my dad's side. Was there a spot you could point it out in your family? Was there any any of that? Yeah, my... my um, my mother's uh, father died of cirrhosis, um, so there's obviously a link there. My mother's mother um, was supposedly a full-blown 24-hour drunk who left my mother's house and walked out when she was 13 and never to be seen again. Um, moved to the other side of the Bronx, we found out maybe 10, 15 years ago, and uh, had some more kids but never divorced my mother's, you know, her husband and, um, and was gone. So, um, so this is your, this is your grandmother. Yeah. Who I never met. Yeah. Yep. And my father's side, I I would think there is some, but he always blamed my mom's side. That's the way it was with my dad. You know, that's from your mother's side of the family. (laughs) So, So you have relatives from that side. Have you met them? Have you interacted with them at all? No. They reached out to my mother maybe 15 years ago and uh, maybe longer, maybe 20 years ago and wanted to get it together because when her mom died, there was a uh, there was a listing of number of kids on the birth certificate prior to the oldest son in their family. Right. And um, this guy did his homework and tracked my mom and my my mom's brother down. And asked my mom if she wanted to get together and all that stuff. And my mom said no and hung up the phone. And my mother's brother, my uncle Bud, he he got together with him because he's a riot. And uh, <laughs> he met him and hung out with him for a while. And then uh, he got tired of him, kind of blew him off. Mm. Uh, but there was some contact later in life. I want to, I got to ask Mike, this is like the Oprah Winfrey show. We're making amazing discoveries here on an emotional level. Scott, when you're, I guess, 15 years ago. So how many, you're probably what, like 15, 16 years sober. Like, how did you handle this? Yeah. Um, You know, my mom did, my mom was an open book if you asked her questions, but she wasn't divulging it, you know, and she Mm. felt like she hit the lottery with, you know, 
having three sons and a husband, uh, where she came from in terms of her background is just, you know, was just a home run, like the life that she got to live versus the chaotic life she lived in the Bronx. Mm. Her father, her brother also, she had another brother who, who, um, who fell off a roof at 19 in the Bronx and died. And uh, I don't know, you know, we were told he was jumping building to building, but I think there's more to the story. Oh. Yeah. The similarities between Scott's family and ours are just so, um, so intense. You know, the three brothers relate yeah. to so much of that. The mom, like perfect life and not, yeah. you know, don't focus on this over here, but let's focus on what we've made here. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what was the environment like in the neighborhood? Like, when did you start kicking around doing drugs and drinking? How old? I was 11 when I had my first drink. Um, my brother was having a party downstairs. My older brother and my twin brother and I had a party upstairs. Um, I drank five 12 ounce Michelobes and I puked, um, all the way to the beach and back outside of my parents' house. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, I was just out, you know, it was just too much for a little kid, but mm -hmm. loved it and couldn't wait to do it again. I was off to the races. When, Off to the race. When did it start to be? I was like, when I finally got to high school, and like, even if I didn't drink, you know, I didn't drink every day, but I would so look forward to the next time I was going to drink. I think it was the same thing with Mike. Like, you know, that was probably yeah. as controlled as it ever got for me, really. I mean, w what was that like for you when you started to drink consistently and you're still in, in, in high school or grade school, even? Well, grade school, you were hiding it, right? It was a weekend warrior, you were making excuses <laughs> on whose houses you were staying at and all that kind of stuff. But I grew up, you know, you got to remember, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, I always like to say that you, you, you were taught to how to drink and how to fight. And I sucked at both of them, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so there was never a fist my face didn't run into, you know? And, uh, and, and, you know, that was really the truth, which was, um, you know, if you had had a, had a disagreement, you had a fight, you know, um, but you were also uh, around the booze. So by the time high school and it was 18 back then, you got to remember it was 18, the drinking age. So I was drinking in my house when I was almost 17. I was allowed to drink in the house. You know, think about that today, right? Um, but but we was we were allowed to drink in the house, um, and I had friends who were allowed to drink in their houses a lot younger than that. So we were going to bars when we were fourteen. We were going out. You know, um, I worked in the restaurant business, mm -hmm. which is just an invitation for for chaos. Um, and you know, you get to close the the restaurant and then go out and say, you know. You got off work at 11, you tell your parents to get off at 2. Um, so there was a lot of opportunities. And in that environment, you really found the older people to hang out with. Yo, um, Mike. And really liked us. Mike Sousa, I was thinking about this, and it just plays right into what Scott's saying. You know, Michael and my brother Kevin, and they, they kind of paved the way working at Smokey Joe's, right, the Villanova bar. And uh, mm -hmm. there was a lot of access to a lot of stuff that we otherwise wouldn't have had that early on in life. And I think, like, if you're an alcoholic, I think you're going to be an alcoholic. But, man, that restaurant industry, really, it, it, you hit the gas, man. It's a fast-forward button, really. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. It was crazy. Everything mm -hmm. was going on in that place. Everybody was older, and they were all bad influences, and I <laughs> loved every minute of it. 
you know, I was a dishwasher with my brother, you know, and, and, and it was crazy. The place was nuts. It was called the Bell Harbor Yacht Club. Right. And they, the boats went away in 63, a hurricane in 63 from the yacht club. And they were never replaced. Oh, so there was no boats, but it was a yacht. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they had two tennis courts and two bocce courts. That's it. <laughs> they had a Commodore. They had, you know, everything, you know, mm-hmm. but there was no boats. And so, you know, we worked there and it was just crazy. It was just a, a place to drink for all these people. Drink and eat. It was nuts. What was your relationship like with your brothers as far as hanging out and drinking and stuff? My, my older brother was, you know, doing his own thing. And then I hung out with my twin regularly. But um, it was tough for us to differentiate ourselves. We were always just looked at as like the twins. So I always tried to be a little crazier and a little more of an idiot. And, uh, and, and honestly, um, in retrospect, and I've dealt with this, I wasn't good to him. You know, I was, um, you know, I was always trying, I'm picking on him too. Um, and, you know, trying to just uh, give him a dig and build myself up uh, that, you know, I was more important or more fun or crazier. Um, and there was no reason for it other than fear and, and you know, and um, being scared, you know, just being a young kid and finding my way, but uh, being infused with alcohol and drugs at such a young age. I never really had an opportunity to look at all that. I was just on fast, you know, autopilot as a young kid. Now, with a focus on education in your house, right? So you're, you know, obviously being pushed to get good grades. Is drinking and and other things, is that affecting you at this point? Like, when do you start to get into a real... Like, like I, this is- I was a straight A student in through uh, grade grade one through grade eight, and my older brother was even like just grade two. My twin and I both we all went to high school in Manhattan. We went to Xavier High School in New York City, Jesuit High School. We started our freshman year with 360 kids and graduated with 190. Everyone else got thrown out or failed out. Wow! Yeah, crazy, and yet. School-wise, I always did well, even in high in high school. You know, I might have had moments here and there where I might take a class that was too hard, but um, but uh, you know, like AP geometry or something like that would got me in trouble once. But for the most part, I, I got really, really decent grades and was able to just you know put myself in a position where that wasn't a problem with my mom and dad because I was getting good grades. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wheels came off in college. The wheels absolutely just fell off. I was 17 when I started college. So that, that was the problem. Before, you so know? real quick, before you got to college, were you, you know, you're in Manhattan, like when, when was the first time you smoked a joint or, 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 or did like a line of cocaine? Was that at all in high school or was that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was, um, first time I smoked a joint was probably ninth grade, um, ninth and 10th grade. And, uh, and, you know, off to the races with it, same with everything else. I also took a lot of quaaludes when I was in high school. Um, not good, you know, not a good thing. Um, the, um, I took a lot of acid in high school, like a ton of mescaline in high school. 
snorted my first line of cocaine probably my junior year in high school. Um, Because I went to my prom with uh, an eight ball of coke in my pocket Mm. for my prom, you know? Did you Um, think that this stuff, like, did you think, like, Oh, like if you can look back all the way back there, like it, it kind of was like, oh, this is something because I always saw it as a gift to being able to hang out with people. It's like the huge mind fuck, right? But like, did you see yeah. that as like it was going to be this conduit to like good time socially? Like, wow, this thing is awesome because you're still getting really good grades too. Yeah, yeah, I felt like um, you know, I, 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 I felt I never thought that until I got to college that this was out of control. Right. In high school, I just felt like, you know, you're growing up. This is what people do. Everybody was doing it. Uh, I didn't know anybody that, no, a few guys, but everybody was off to the races. And um, there was always guys worse than you. And I was getting grades and I was going to go to college when a lot of my buddies were, you know, um, getting their GEDs and going to work at companies or a lot of them became firemen and, and, and cops and sanitation men and went into the trades in terms of the unions. Um, so they were all, you know, when I was in college, they were all making money, making some of them making good money with, at what they were doing. And, uh, you know, I was a broke college kid, you know? So, but in high school, I definitely, it, it allowed you, you know, to be with the, what you thought were the cool guys at the time and put you in a position of, you know, maybe a little bit of status by being able to have, you know, some drugs on you when other people might not have. But it was all going in the same place, which was, you know, I was all I was going to I had no shot at, you know, a good quality of life because of what I was doing. You find that like your, you know, you stunted your your growth socially early on. Right. Yeah. So so because when you're starting at 11, right, you don't develop that. Yes. I didn't have any. um I didn't have any, um, I grew up with all brothers, right? My, and, and I didn't how, know how to talk to anybody other than, you know, drunken guys, you know? <laughs> I, I, I didn't have any game whatsoever in terms of relationships with girls and stuff like that. The only relationship I ever had that was was great was with a girl that was older than my brother and I, actually, that worked with us in the restaurants. And she was... Um, she was five years older than us. And when I was 16, she died in a car accident um, with her and another girl from the neighborhood when she was sick, when I was 16. And I just, um, she was the first person, in my opinion, that I understood what unconditional love was. And, um, and I was devastated and never really dealt with it. And so from 16 on, I, um, I just had, I wouldn't say it was a death wish, but I just didn't care as much. Kind of lost my faith along the way and, uh, you know, just relied on myself and uh, and what I was up to, which wasn't good. But that was my first understanding of what um, what a relationship was. But it wasn't even sexual. It was just a platonic, but mm-hmm. what a great person. You know what I mean? And what a great, well, tragic loss um, that that really, you know, just was terrible, um, you know, and, and then for the neighborhood too, like everybody knew, you know, and it was devastating, you know? So, so at the end, um, that, that was kind of my kind of foray into college was just, you know, 
if I have drink in my hand and drugs in my pocket, everything will be fine. So you hit college, you go to Villanova, you end up, um, you know, outside of Philadelphia on the main line, this nice area. When you got to college, were you the bad influence? Cause I'm like, like on other people, like how did you, how did you hit college? Yeah. Everybody was showing up with computers, you know what I mean? And, and lots of books and stuff. And I just, I had a case of beer and a bag of weed in my pocket. And I'm like, I can't wait for my parents to leave. And this is going to be a lot of fun. I, and it's not hard to find like-minded people. And I found probably 30 guys in six months that, that um, wanted to drink and, and, and run around like I did. And school was secondary. No ifs, ands, or buts. Found them very fast. Some on my dorm or just through other guys and parties we went to. It wasn't hard to find. You know, some failed out and never saw again. Um, some failed out um, or were kicked out. It was a, a, a variety of different reasons, but, uh, but uh, I certainly was a bad influence. But this is, it's starting to affect your your uh, your grades and everything at this point, right? Right away, dude, right away I got a 2.5 my first semester, like a 2.4 my second semester. And I was, you know, I was saying things were hard, but I wasn't going to school as much as I should. I wasn't studying as much as I should. And then, um, then uh, so that was my freshman year. My sophomore year, I actually failed three classes. For the first time, I was failing classes. Um, you know, academic probation, I got a one nine one semester and I had to go to school in the summers and summer school at Villanova and also in, you know, I failed public speaking in college. <laughs> you can speak. Public speaking. It was on the other side of campus at eight o'clock in the morning, and I, there was no way I was going to make this class. Forget it. I went to two classes, and that was it. You know, it was over. It was over. But it, my grades went, you know, in the toilet. And I was in the business school and the finance degree, and it wasn't fun. You know, um, especially accounting classes, and you know, a lot of the stuff that was your core curriculum. It was just hard when you don't, you know, you don't study and you don't go to class. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge problem for me. Well, and then early in your life and early in college, this thing that was, is such a huge part of you now, like the alcohol and the drugs, it's officially turning on you. Are you able to, are you able to kind of wrap your mind around that? Or do you just like at a young age, like I did, I did, I I just kept drinking and using. Yeah. I really thought that, you know, I had some bad luck, you know, I got a couple of lousy teachers. It would have been a little different. Um, but I was out of control sophomore year. Um, I was taking, you know, I was doing quaaludes and stuff like that. So my answer was no more quaaludes after my sophomore year. I stopped taking p- those pills, right? What were those, by and the way, I, people don't know too much about quaaludes. Like, what were those drugs doing for you? Like, they, they, were, they were like, you can't really even it, get them anymore. It's like taking 10 values in one shot. They were just mescaline. Mescaline is acid. So okay. it's, you know, it's not mushrooms, which I did, but it was just, you know, like a little tiny little pill, like microdot. It was really, really small. And, uh, you know, it's, it was acid. Yeah. I took Ludes once and uh, I went down the shore with Murph and we went to, we were at Wawa 
and I couldn't talk. I could barely stand. Yeah. And this yeah, woman came yeah. up, Mike, I don't know who the woman was to this day. She approaches Murph and I, and she's like, Oh, like you're Terry Sousa's son, like talking to me. And I was like, ah, yeah. And Murph's like, lady, you got the wrong guy. You got the wrong <laughs> And we went into Wawa and just went on our merry way, like no problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but that's, that's I wonder who that was. Yeah, I know, yeah. Who was that? Yeah. I, I, I knew to stay away from him because I was drinking, you know, I, um, I mean, there's a thousand stories. They're all mm -hmm. the same. But, you know, I went from Connecticut to Florida. Don't even remember it. <laughs> Sitting in the backseat of some guy's car for spring break. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I got in a fight with him before we left. And he was like three times the size of me. You know, uh, it was horrible. You know, um, and, and that always happened. Like, I, I would get my ass kicked every time I would do stuff like that. And, uh, and, and I wasn't fun to be around, but. There were people, like-minded people, who put up with me. I guess. What was the scene like in the '80s at, at, at a school, a college, um, with like with cocaine and stuff like that? I mean, it was it was readily available, um, and certainly, um, you know, especially when you're involved in helping it be more available. <laughs> um, so, so, but it was, you know, I was the drug dealer's dream, which was. You know, I just I just want to break even, which is the funniest thing you could ever say to a guy. You know, it's no shot, right? But it was it was everywhere, and everybody was doing it. But there was a huge subset of that school that was going to class and doing well, and you know, and looking at careers in Wall Street and you know, graduate school and law school, and really had it tight. I just didn't know. Like, I mean, I might have known them, yeah, but I didn't. I, I, I didn't have any aspirations other than graduating at that point. And, so, and I just to get out of school. So what happens? You mentioned your sophomore year. You're kind of like your grades are bottoming out. Does, does, do we keep going in that direction or do, does it, does it all change when we get sober? Like how does, how, do you, do you kind of change course in, in college? No, I don't change any course. Right. Uh, the only blip I had was I got caught with a lot of marijuana by my parents. Hmm. And they threatened me not to be able to go back to school. So I agreed to go see a drug counselor who was a friend of my, a priest friend from this from the neighborhood. And so I didn't drink or smoke any pot or anything for, for a week. And I went to see this guy once a week while uh, the summer, during the summer, um, I went to see him two or three times. Every time I would go straight. But I, after like the third or fourth time, I started bringing a beer on the way home in the car, or you know, I smoke a half a joint in the, in my dad's car on the way back, or you know, I um, I felt like I got one over on him, and my whole goal was to get back to school because I was threatened with not being able to go back to school, and that was really scary. So we, we I convinced my father to let me go back to school. The ramifications were, you know, if you don't get good grades uh, and you don't get do well, like you can't do what you did sophomore year. So for, probably got like a two seven my junior year, first semester, second semester, which I'm telling you, I, it was no different than any other semester. But I'll never forget, I got a B plus, three Bs and a C plus for a three up. <laughs> 
right? And I didn't do anything, you know? And, and my roommate was even mad at me because he got like a, he failed some class or something and was so mad at me for doing okay. And I didn't do anything, you know? Um, so needless to say, I was okay, right? And I got through that junior year um, and I was able to go work in the summer, come back and uh, and try to get out of it. So, and, yeah, so, uh, yeah. So, so how does senior year go? And it kind of leads up to you. Kind of senior year is a is a hot mess. I was back to the races again. As soon as I got to school, um, I was up and you know, um, and running like a lot of guys had left that was uh, that were friends of mine, but we still had guys that were doing their fifth year, hanging around guys that never graduated, guys that um, you know lived in the area still. Um, and then a lot of my buddies that were in my grade that were trying to get out. And um, it was just, I ended up uh, getting a relationship with a girl from Rosemont who was the nicest girl in the world. I didn't know what she was doing with me, you know, and uh, and I was running around just doing my same old thing, maybe hiding it a little more, just trying to get out of school. And then second semester, um, I was really like in trouble because I didn't know if I was going to graduate because I didn't know if I was going to pass one or two classes. I found out like the day before graduation that I was, I got a D in my investments class uh, and I was the happiest guy in the world because I knew I was going to get out. And the guy's like, you're getting a D. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I know what I'm getting, but I'm getting my diploma and that's how my father's coming to my graduation. So I'm thrilled. And that's honestly the way I felt. And he's like, aren't you worried that you're not going to be able to get a job? I go, no, I don't worry about that. <laughs> so the anxiety was around just getting the degree yeah. and appeasing your dad and on to the next whatever. Exactly. You know, and so my thought process was, was that, you know, I, I didn't, if I always thought I'd be some type of salesman. So I always felt like, you didn't need to have a 4-0. I had a 4-0 street cube, I used to say to my, you know, in my interviews, you know, the guys would say, look at your grades on my first job interview. And I'm like, what are you looking at my grades for? Is this a sales job? Like, what are you talking about, <laughs> right? Like, I can sell. And by then I was sober. So, you know, we haven't gotten to that, but that was the whole thing that gave me the confidence. All right, get us to that. What happens, you know, you, you get your diploma. Yeah. You graduate go, college, and then yeah. what, what happens? I go, we have like senior week, right? So you have senior week, like you need another week, right? But <laughs> This is before you, you know, graduate. Around, um, I think after it's okay. right after, right? Yeah. yeah. So we're running around doing our thing, and then um, we, we graduate. I was the only guy out of my um, main group who got his diploma. So believe it or not, that's how... These are the these are the winners that I hung out with, right? All these other guys weren't getting their diplomas. They walked through graduation but weren't getting their diplomas. And so I was just elated that I was I got out. And um and I was able to go back to New York, figuring I was gonna start interviewing for jobs that uh I would get for my father helping me networking and stuff like that. So I felt like I was gonna get a job. I just needed to pass a drug test and not be an idiot. And 
I'm going out every night till early in the morning, staying out. My father would be up on like a Saturday to go play tennis or reading the paper and, and I'm walking in. So after three weeks, my twin brother said to my parents that I couldn't go a day without smoking pot. That was it. He didn't say anything else. And, um, and so I went, um, I went out that day to a buddy's house. Maybe Sorry. I was worried about my phone going off in yours. Good Lord. Un what, uh, unprofessional. Right. Yeah, go ahead. How about Mike Hamilton's ears right now? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Poor guy. Poor Mike. So anyway, um, my parents bring me back to my house and have an intervention with me. This and, is the and day because the phone rang. So you, you go to a party that day, right? No, I just go to somebody's house okay. in the morning. We're probably smoking a joint in a guy's backyard. Okay. And my father comes and grabs me and says, get in the car. Oof. And he said, you're, um, we're talking to your mother and I right now. And she's at the house. And uh, we need we need you to to go away to a rehab, or you're gonna get thrown out of the house. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. You know all this. You got to be kidding me. Um, so they had an intervention. No interventionists. No experience doing this. They had a place for me to go to because my brothers, my twin brothers' uh, best friends' family was well um, well known to rehabs. So. I go home, I have like four hours in the room, and finally I agree to go. I just broke down and said, you know, because it was a problem. Well, yeah, why'd you and, agree? Yeah. Um, well, I was I was broke. I had nowhere to go if I was leaving the house because that was the ultimatum. And uh, my father asked me to put my hand out, see how much I was shaking, mm. and my hand was like rattling, you know? And I said, I'm shaking because I'm nervous because you're talking about all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And and he's like, no, you're not, you know? And uh, I don't know, it was that moment of clarity, I guess, that mm -hmm. I just said to myself, um, you know, let's go. So Had you ever thought it was a problem up until that point? And after my junior and senior year, okay. was, you know, I just figured maybe I could taper off, you know, like, you got more mature and older and you stopped doing the drugs and you just drank, but there was, there, there was no end to this. It wasn't going to end well. When you get to the treatment center, what, what, what goes down? Like how are you, are you relieved or are you like, this is I, bogus? I, I got there my first night. I went to a place called St. Mary's out in uh, Minneapolis. It's down a block from Hazleton at the time, St. Mary's and this place strike Stricker in New York city were like the places. And um, I didn't want to go in New York City because I was afraid I could go out the fire exit and I knew where I was. And if I did that in Minneapolis, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to happen. So I, um, I took a plane right out there, a one-way ticket, got there. They checked me in. They checked all my stuff. And then um, I got to my room and I just started crying. I was like, oh, my God, my wife's older. I'm over i'm 21 this is the worst day of my life like um, um and and my brothers both said to me you'll just learn how to stay off the drugs and you can back and drink and i was like i think i should drink on the way out there because i don't think this is going to end well and they said they would pick me up with a six-pack right so that's how much we all knew mm -hmm. so um i cried 
Um, I got up the next morning. I'm in there for 28 days. I, I showed up. My parents came out um, for the parents' week. Um, it's the first time I saw my father cry. Like, he could not hold it together. Getting back in the cab, going back to the airport again. It was, and then it was a real, it was realization for me, having been a little bit sober, a little bit dry for a couple of weeks, that he was, you know, the family part of this. I never thought I was really bothering anybody, but to see your father cry, who never cried before, kind of lit up, uh, you know, lit me up with a realization that this is what they were talking about, that family disease. And I found out about my you know, my mother's side of the family and the disease piece of this whole thing. And it, it resonated for what it's worth. Uh, so I do 30 days in there. And that was the summer of, of 1986. So it was going into July 4th. Um, so I stayed there right till around, right around that weekend. And, uh, and then they wanted me to go to a halfway house in the Catskills and believe it or not, I talked him out of it. Were you at this point embracing sobriety, or are you? Because you're still you're 21. Like, are I'm, you thinking? I am. I am absolutely petrified. Okay. Right. Um, I'm absolutely petrified. I knew that I had to go to meetings when I went out. I was identifying as chemically dependent when I was there. I wasn't even saying I was an alcoholic, you know. And so, um, I didn't. My head was spinning. And I didn't know anybody who didn't drink and do drugs. I didn't know anyone. So I'm like, what am I going to do? Yeah. Like, and I'm going home to Rockaway, the Irish Riviera, in the middle of the summer. <laughs> right? It's just like, it was, it was crazy. So what did you do? I, um, I, went to, I got home. I went to a meeting out in uh, JFK Airport because I didn't want to go near my house, which was like 35, 40 minutes away. And there was a, a meeting there. It was my first meeting out of rehab. And uh, I raised my hand and, you know, got got a clap that, you know, it was my first meeting. And um, I went back there the next day. They said, you know, come back. So I went back the next day. And uh, in the corner of the room was a buddy of mine that I grew up with, um, my buddy Steve, who was in the back seat of that car where the two girls died. Oh. When I was when when I was 16, he was in the back seat. He crawled out the back and lived. And he was going to meetings. So I said, Oh, you come out here because you don't want anybody to see you. Because no, I work out here lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'll pick you up Friday night. He picked me up Friday night at my parents' house where I was living and uh drove me to a meeting about two miles from my house. And there was there was everybody. It was amazing. Everybody, his friends, my father's friends, my friends, guys that you know disappear or whatever, like aren't around anymore. And uh, it was a smoke filled AA meeting on a Friday night, packed, and uh, that became my home group. And that's where I got my sponsor. And uh, you know, I just uh latched on, and a couple other guys got sober. There was a couple of guys in there getting sober, and uh. It's a program of attraction. You know, these guys were, they were doing it. Why couldn't I do it, right? I got it. I thought I was going to get a Wall Street kind of guy as my sponsor. I got, my guy was a New York City uh, sanitation man. His name was Kevin. 
And uh, he was the best thing that ever happened. Mm. He used to say, keep the faith, which is something I say to this day. Um, when uh, he would see me every day, just keep the faith. It's going to work. I promise you, keep the faith. He had a wife and three kids and uh, and had a great life. And uh, was just really just a superhuman being. He took me under his wing. And then when I was a year and uh, sober, I had a, like my family came to the meeting and a, and a buddy of mine and his wife and, you know, um, and I spoke and it was awesome. And then um, I moved to Philly a week later, I got a job. Um, I was interviewing for a job in Philly, same job, same company, but one in New York and one in Philly. And, you know, when you're in an interview, you say, oh, yeah, I, you know, I, I went Forever. to school, here, I know the area, and they only offered me the Philly job, not the New York job. So in 1987, I moved to Philly only a year and a couple of weeks over, and uh, I got a single studio apartment down at the Presidential Apartments down by in Bala Kinwood. Bala, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where, you know, my coming back to Philly started. Are you are you fearful at this point because you're moving away from home a year I was into kind it? Kind of excited. I had a couple of buddies down here. No, nobody great. Um, I just felt like, um, you know, New York. It was hard. I, I got a job in New York my first year, um, and uh, it was hard living in New York, not making a lot of money, living at home, uh, not hanging out with anybody because I just knew AA people, so I wouldn't go out with the people I worked with for cocktails after work, um, I would just go home, you know? So I was riding the train in, riding the train out, and I was just like, um, I don't know, I just felt like it was the right thing. Mm. And so I so I moved. And then I met my buddy, Timmy, who was my best friend in college. He was uh, um, moving back. And then we ended up moving in together a year later. And uh, that's how I met my wife, who, Worked with him and all these other guys that I became really good friends with, and um, and so I stayed sober. Uh, I lived in the city for a while. Uh, went to meetings in the city. Even did the mustard seed stuff and the lawyers meeting downtown in the city, and um, and then I got in a relationship and I still went to meetings, but I wasn't working my program. Didn't have a like a go to sponsor. Not sure my sponsor knew I was his sponsor, you know. <laughs> and uh, at five years sober, I had my head up my ass, uh, really bad. Um, I went to see the relationship ended. I started going seeing a psychiatrist. I um, doubled down on meetings. I got a new sponsor, um, and things just started to click because I started working the steps specifically. Did four and five, six and seven, and uh, and my life changed. Kind of like I did my fifth step with a guy in New York who was a friend of my family's who was an old gentleman who had a lot of time. And I walked into his house on a Saturday morning and walked out feeling like somebody took 80 pounds off my shoulders. And I've heard you say this before. You did not work. The steps really like that. That fifth step was the first time you did it five years into sobriety, right? Yeah, it was horrible, you know. And you know, because I was young and I felt like you know, I was you know, I, I filled my you know, I filled that hole that I filled with alcohol and drugs with, right? You fill it with everything but what you're supposed to fill, it with, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. I did all that, and that all wore off and didn't work. So it was eventually the drink, 
was start doing the work. And back then, you you know, you know, you got to remember I left, right? So I didn't have the same sponsor and I moved down here and I got a guy, but I'm not really, you know, engaged. And if you're showing up and doing stuff, you know, you feel like, uh, you know, you're, you're hey, I'm going to meetings, I'm not drinking. And uh, back then it wasn't like, it is today where, you know, somebody was taking you through the steps. I've heard Dave C. talk about this too. You know, you just, um, you had to go figure it out for yourself. And uh, I didn't have to do that, but I had to go realize that I needed to do it. And um, so, and I still have the same sponsor today, 32 years later. Mm. So you, you, uh, talk, you talk about, like, there's a couple of things you say. One of the things you say that really speaks to what you're talking about now is like, you know, AA is a bridge to life. It's not a tunnel to more meetings. I mean, I, lo I look at you, you're one of the more social guys, period. Um, with yeah. just friends everywhere, never met a stranger type deal. And, you know, early in sobriety, I, I see that start to happen. As you, as you take me through your story, like, was it around that five-year mark where you really started to kind of pound the pavement with the program that you were able to sort of open up and like really do stuff outside of AA with passion and vigor and enjoyment. Yeah, I was certainly, I was just uh, going through the motions and uh, I was not drinking. I would, I would say it was, I was, um, I wasn't really sober, sober in the truest sense of the world, which to me means, right. Having a sponsor, going to meetings, being in service, working the steps, giving back. I didn't have all those qualities. And um, and I think it showed, you know, uh, I was really immature still. I hadn't really uh, kind of walked myself through a path of dealing with my past. So um, it wasn't as if I was this, you know, curmudgeon young kid or whatever, right? But I, I certainly, I certainly had a, I had a temper. Um, and I felt more like a victim than that, than mm. I, I was in terms of being given a gift that I should cherish. And, um, and five years, um, that all changed, you know? And so, and then I met my wife, uh, you know, we're almost married 30 years now. And I, you know, I had my kids and, and I, I just, I moved out of the city. I moved to the, to, to the suburbs and, uh, just got plugged in out there. And uh, and I've never not not gone. I've always showed up, um, and I know that's huge yeah. because there's a lot of people with time that I have that uh, that don't show up anymore because to them it's like, well, I'm not going to drink anymore. But you know, for those young guys that well, were there with me in the beginning, um, that guy that was at the door that shook my hand for that meeting in my neighborhood and said, "We've been waiting for you." We got a chair for you. You know, they were, they were, they weren't kidding. You know, they knew who I was and knew from a lot of people that certainly had issues. And so I want to be there for that guy that walks through that door. And, uh, and I love talking to the young, I've got a 19 year old sponsee right now. He's just the best, you know? And, uh, and I love those young guys who are trying to get it at a young age and listening to, Hey, go to this sober house and right work these steps and get a job like you know like Pete did at KFC and this kid's right now yeah. a barista you know uh, and he works uh, at a gelato place now you know it's just 
And he's like, I'm like, dude, you got to do it, you know, and you got to do this. And now I'm taking him through the steps. It's just great. Hey, well, you, you, you told I, you know, Mike real quick. You told the story and I always tell it. Um, you're playing golf with a guy. You both have a lot of time, but this guy doesn't go to meetings anymore. And he says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing great. And you said to him, so you got yours. So fuck everybody else. Yeah. And, and that I, I love that story because it's true. And you're, you're like seeing you, these young kids would never have you in their life. If you were just kind of checked out and been like, life is good. I'm chilling, you know? And they, and they do what I give them. I get back tenfold. So it's, it's, and if people kind of knew that because they weren't engaged, they are engaged and they're out there sticking their hand out, they would realize how wonderful it feels, you know? It really is in all aspects of your life when you bring somebody along, right? And you help somebody. I mean, where where isn't that a great thing? You know, I've been in sales for 37 years and I love teaching young guys uh, how to do this job and how to help them. And that's why I got into management. You know, I wasn't just a selfish sales guy who just wanted to write his own business and just be, I am now, but, right. but I wasn't back then. You know, I like to bring and mentor people and bring people along and watch them have good careers and buy a house for their, uh, you know, for themselves and their wife and their kids and, you know, put money away for, I just think it's great. So, you know, what I'm trying to give that 19 year old kid is just to show him that I got sober at 21. Right. And I'm 59 now. And mm -hmm. you could be, you could live this life and, um, and give them a lot of hope that maybe they just need one day. Maybe another in the next day. I don't know, but to just keep pounding them with the, with this opportunity that they have in front of them, and not look at it as a death sentence, you know, which a lot of kids do. You can tell uh, real fast, and as you guys know, you stick with the winners, right? Yeah, that's that's where you know you've come into my life, right? Like like um, just being a, a, around you for you know more than my time sober. And I was like, I want to, you know, and, and it's, it took me a while because to your point, service, my life changed when, when I started to become of service like six or seven years ago. And mm -hmm. that's where I'm, our relationship really grew. But I have a question for you because you and I have something in common being the first sober in a alcoholic family. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, you know, I want to hear like what what was that like for you, uh, being the uh, torchbearer? Well, everybody was very supportive. I could say that, but everybody was still on their journey. You know, my mother and father didn't drink around me for a while. Um, my father went to Al-Anon for a ton of years. Um, my my mother stopped drinking before, you know, um, way before I did. Um, and they kept the booze out of the house for the most part. And then, you know, it's a program of attraction. And I would get uh, calls from people, you know, family members saying, hey, what's going on here? And, and, and some of them have followed me. But then we have this tree of, of like um, mm -hmm. cousins. And now, you know, my sister was nephews are in now and and all these other people kind of came up from this whole thing but i i like you was the first right and 
and I'm the youngest in my family, only by 10 minutes, but, but it <laughs> is, it's, 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 it's different, right? Because, you know, there's not much that they don't know about life, but this, I really know, like I'm uniquely qualified yeah. to help somebody else and bring somebody down that path, whether it's a family member, right? It's probably easier when it's not a family member because <laughs> there's so much pain involved, right? But um, but I have uh, I have this gift that I, I you know, you got to give away. What about uh, some of the stuff you do? I mean, you're constantly... I mean, I don't want to say constantly, but you're going on like 12 step calls. You're, you're, you, people are calling, Hey, Scott's the kind of guy we can, we can have talk to this person. Yeah. And a 12 step call is basically when somebody's, you know, really bad and they, and they need yeah. help get, getting to treatment or getting to a meeting. I mean, how about all the stuff you do with that? It's pretty amazing. I just get calls, you know, from people and I'll go and talk to anybody. I, I never go alone. I always, I grab, I grab a co-pilot. And, uh, you know, it's fun, actually. It's kind of interesting because <laughs> usually they don't want to go and they're not going to listen to you. And I'll just get up and walk out. I say, Do well, you know what? You got all the answers when you don't. You know, I said, the only way we're ever going to see each other again is if you start going to meetings. Otherwise, our paths probably won't cross. And your life is going to suck. And mine doesn't. And then I kind of leave. You know, I mean, there's nothing I can do. Um, and then the seeds planted. Sometimes they come around and they pick up the phone a couple of days later. Um, and sometimes they don't. Uh, and you never hear from them again. And, you know, that happens in the program, too. But, uh, you know, I I, uh, I just enjoy it. And, uh, you know, you're around the lawn, you know, it's now it's people's kids, you know. Um, and you're talking to people's kids who have problems that kind of want to you know, sometimes it's just the parents that want to scare them or sometimes it's it's real. And and whatever they're telling you, it's probably 10 times as worse. Because it's really tough out there in regards to what's going on with today's kids and with everything with fentanyl and, and the uh, heroin mm -hmm. crisis and everything. It's awful. Speaking, you know? speaking of that, how have you how have you raised, you know, you got a wonderful wife and you got two beautiful daughters. We just saw one of them. Yeah. Um, how have you raised these kids in, in, in an environment where you know that you've got the ism? So, you know, you yeah. never, you never know, right. About the offspring. And, yeah. and, yeah. and just in today's world where, you know, nobody knows better than an alcoholic about what lurks out there. Yeah. So how do you, how do you bring your kids up? In a, a, I, in a time I, like I just been brutally honest. I, if you, if they ask me a question, I'm not holding that. And I know people who don't do that, but mm. for me, I just felt like if have you ever tried this, yes or no? Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, you named it, I did it other than heroin, you know? And, um, and so I just answered those questions. But I also know that the, the, the longer a young kid stays away from foods, it gives their brain more time to develop. I've talked to Mike B and those guys about this. And they told me always just to be honest. So uh, I don't, actually know any more than I know. And, and I, uh, I, you're raised in a sober house where there's no booze in your house versus somewhere else where, you know, you've seen mom and dad get a load on or whatever, or there's problems in the house and all that kind of stuff. You kind of just run with that. So I think that um, just being in a sober house and seeing the way we act, that it has a positive 
effect on on people and the kids. But I obviously don't have control over whether or not they have the gene or not. And I haven't seen it, but who knows, right? Who knows if it shows up later in life? I hope not. But, uh, you know, they, they know where to go. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and hang in there and take this compliment. But your success inside um, recovery has led to great success outside professionally and personally. And now you're you know, you, you navigate some, some big time waters, uh, every, every day in your life, you know, do you ever stop and think, man, like this is a kid from, from Rockaway who, who's his mom and his dad grabbed him one day when he was in, in a backyard. Hey, come on, you're coming with us and we're, you're going to rehab. No, I, I, I agree. You know, I, um, yeah, my success, like, I feel like I'm the most successful guy I know because I've got time. And, and what I mean by that is, sober. I don't care about anything else. And, um, you know, I'm down here in, in Florida for, for three months and I'm working from here. And if I have to go home, I go home, but my mom's down the road, my mom's 10 minutes away. And, uh, my mom's in a, uh, a facility for memory care. She's been there almost five years. She's on the end stages of Alzheimer's. She can't really talk anymore. And, uh, and I promised myself, uh, when I got down here, that I would go every day to see her. And, you know, you don't, it's not as if she's going to remember or anything like that. But, you know, I, I reminded myself before I got here that she was the one, right? She was the catalyst that smacked me in the head and put the room together and was the person who didn't want to see her son end up like her brother who went off the building. She wanted uh, wanted me to have a life. And if I was abusing drugs or alcohol, she didn't want to see that continue uh, for her son. And so because of her, I get to live this great life. And, you know, my father died 17 years ago and asked us to take good care of my mom. I'm not sure he knew what he was asking you know, <laughs> the last couple of years, as you guys know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, just as well as me. And uh, it's just... Uh, I'm just trying to show up for her now every day and uh, and just give her a kiss, tell her I love her. And then sometimes it's that quick and I walk out of it, you know. And uh, so the way I can pay her back right now is just show up every day for her and uh, and be that son that, you know, that should walk in there every day and spend some time with her and not dis- disregard it, you know, even though I'm down the block. So I'm kind of paying tribute to her right now by yeah. showing up every day, you know. And uh, and that's my that's how I feel so good. Right. You know, it's just being able to uh, to be able to go see her every day. And uh, eventually, you know, most of the time she'll she'll have a moment where she'll give me a kiss or tell me she loves me or mumble it at the best. But that's all I can get right now. I'll take yeah. it. You, you know, you, you've always been such uh, an example to me of the community, right, of sobriety. And, uh, you know, about six, seven years ago. Um, when my dad started to to really slip, our dad, our dad, Peter's dad too, right? Uh, started to get sick, and uh, Eagles were on the play Super Bowl run, and uh, I was complaining one day about, you know, he really wanted me to come over and watch the game with him, the uh, you know the NFC Championship, and I'm like, I just want to go home and 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 just chill at my place and watch it, and after uh, after a meeting, you know, you pull me aside and say. If I could watch one more game with my father, I'd give anything. 
And uh, that hit me. And, and I went over there and, and I, you know, watched that game and then the Super Bowl. And I still remember it. Right. That's the beauty of this thing. Like right. I pay that forward. But I mean, that's huge for me that I had that time because, you know, because somebody sh- you shared that with me. That's that's yeah. the beauty of this whole thing. And even Pete, you look at your brother, I mean, right? Remember when he was first getting sober and he came up from, from rehab and he was around, right? And, and um, you know, he was trying to get his whole life together. He was dealing with some of his past and stuff. And you look at him now and he's, you know, you're, he's a lot more uh, open about his uh, his recovery. But, you know, the stuff he's doing now, this, and, and he's doing games and Everybody yeah. knows who he is. It's just, it's freaking awesome. I just miss him. That's the problem. Is that he's down in Texas. <laughs> I know, right? God. Uh, but it's great, man. And that warms my heart from that time. You know, well, from we, when I was, I, I would come back in. I was in and out, in and out. And Scott would look at me and be like, you're going to stay this time? I'd be like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, but that, that, but that's the seed. That's that, that, yeah. that is that. You were standing at the door saying, are you going to stay yeah. this time? That's. You know, and you're doing that with 25, 30 years at the time. I mean, it's just amazing, right? Uh, any- awesome. Look at you. Yeah. Any- right? Yeah. Any- anything else, guys? Mm. Yeah. No, this is great. I love you both guys, man. You guys have been through a lot, man. It's not easy losing your brother and the way you guys carried yourself and how you handled your mom and certainly your dad. It, uh, it warms my heart, dude. I know it's painful. And yeah. uh, to see you guys both walk through that together and stand there with you, with Pete and Murph and, and all the other guys is uh, is a testament to how much people care about you guys and how much respect they have for you. Yeah. You've been there for us the whole time, man, and it means a lot. You got it. And you guys both love the laugh and break balls. Oh, I know. We haven't, like, that's so much, like, our first thought is how to bust someone's balls, right? Like, I mean, it's the greatest, right? It, it's our luck. Lo- I said that because you and I talk about it when I was it's talking. It's our about love Kevin. language. It, it's our yeah, a hundred percent. I saw you were going to say it, so I said it first. Yeah. All right, the so, battery's going to die on this perfect. fucking thing. I don't know what Mike Hamilton's up to, but um, Mike, what? Uh, anyways, we're, it's good that we're done. What's the matter? The battery's going to die on the iPad, Mike. I mean, look. Well, we're. Oh my! Yeah, <laughs> I don't seriously, know. Mike. This guy. But we're Mom, we're, we're good. We're good, anyways, guys. I love you, Scott. I can't Come thank on. you enough. I'll send you. A Are link we good? This. Yeah, we're good. This will be done, probably done on Tuesday or Wednesday. Boy, that was great. Thanks it so really much, was, guys. Scott. I love you, brother. All right, boys. Oh, I love you, brother. Later. Later. Bye, bye. Thanks, man. <laughs> this has been a Rogue Media Network production.